Okay, so what we're going to study today is Likutis Sichas. The Rebbe talks on the weekly Parsha, and it's volume 15, and it's the third Sicha for Parsha Vayetze, which is this week's Parsha. So before we go into the actual Sicha, I just want to give you a little bit of a background of where this Sicha was, where it came to be, or when it came to be that it was written up and edited by the Rebbe. So first of all, as many of you remember, that in 1977, by Shmini the Rebbe suffered a serious heart attack in the middle of the Akafos. And the continuing weeks after, while the Rebbe was slowly recuperating and gaining back his strength, he was talking from his room, from his office, and it was broadcasted downstairs to the big shul of 770 so that people can hear his talks. But he did it from his room because if he would come into the big room, it would be more strenuous, you know, for many different reasons. So this way, from the comfort of his room, of his office, he was able to give a talk. And these talks were done specifically after Shabbos, Saturday night, in order that they could use a microphone. So the Rebbe was able to talk at a microphone. Everybody could hear him downstairs. On this Saturday night of this week's Parsha Vayetze, that year was the 9th, going into the 10th of Kislev, which are very well-known dates on the Chabad calendar, the release from prison from the Mittal Rebbe, and then on the 10th Kislev, his passing. So anyways, on that Saturday night, the Rebbe spoke a very, very long talk. Now, there's a few interesting things about this long talk, and then we're going to go actually into this talk. First, a year later, in 1978, a year later, on this week's uh, Parsha Vayetze, the, the talk was published for the first time in the edited, ver, edited format, where the Rebbe edited the whole talk. And in the end of the Sicha, it says that it's, a, it's basically a gathering from the mimer, from the discourse that the Rebbe said. And we have discussed many times the difference between a discourse and a Sicha. We know that when the Rebbe said a, a, a sicha, it was less spiritual intensity than you would see on him when he said a discourse. In a discourse, his eyes would set closed, he would wear a handkerchief around his, uh, his, his hand, and different things he did to hold on to the materialisms of this world. So this was a mimer, actually. And it was said from his room, and a year later it was published into a talk, in addition to what he said at that night, they also collected some other things that he said that helped form this sicha from talks that he said in 1963 or 64, the winter of 60, uh, end of 63 going into 64. Also, 10 years later, in 1970, sorry, in 1980. Seven or going into 1988 at the same parsha, the end of 70 of 1987. That week was a gathering, was the second international conference of the Shluchim. It seems like a lot of the Shluchim's wives also joined at that time into the same weekend. It's only a few months later when the Rebbe's wife passed away that they established a special date for the women's conference on the yard site of the Rebbe's wife. But at this time, it was kind of together, it seems like, because they wrote up again this entire mimer discourse much deeper and much more in full length. 
It's probably the longest uh, edited version of a Hasidic discourse on the Rebbe that was published. It has nine, 28 paragraphs, very, very long and very deep. And the Rebbe said that he wants to give it out by hand only to those that are the shluchim and the shluchos, to the men and to their wives. Nobody else in 770 would get this booklet of this Hasidus. So it seems like it was a special Hasidus that he wanted to hand give it to each one of the shluchim and after the shluchim line went by, then their, the, white, the women went by. Now, just to point out how serious he took this, that he only wanted the shluchim to go by. There was a guy that came by, I believe from Israel, and the Rebbe said to him, uh, you're a shliach? And he said, oh, I'm a rav, a rabbi of a shul. The Rebbe said, you know, he basically didn't know why the guy was coming by. Another person, the Rebbe said, what are you, you're a shliach? And he said, no, I'm a mashpia. I'm like a mentor in a yeshiva. And the Rebbe said, I myself also am not taking a booklet. Imagine that. Like he viewed that the people that are going out on the field are, you know, deserve to get this hand by hand. So you see the, the uniqueness of this. There was another fascinating story that I, I want to share with you that also happened, like it happened many times when the Rebbe gave out things, and then we're going to go into the actual talk itself. But while he was giving out this mimer that was from this night's talk that we're talking about here, so a story happened almost, you would say, like it was like a miracle that just like fell under a table nobody even realized it. But amazing story happened. I think one of my most favorite stories, because the story was like this. There's a guy, he passed away recently. His name was Rabbi Benyamini, a Holocaust survivor who started a yeshiva in the mountains in Brazil. And it still exists, that yeshiva. So this Rabbi Benyamini used to come quite often to New York to visit the Rebbe. Because after all, he was there with the inspiration of the Rebbe. So this year, in 1987, going into 88, at this time of the year, it's the year of Hakel, like this year now, the year of gatherings, and he decided he's going to come to the Rebbe again that year. The Rebbe was giving out this booklet to, I don't know, hundreds of people, and when he walked by, the Rebbe calls him back and gives him another copy and says, this is because you didn't make it a chazaka. You didn't make it like a fixed, repeat thing that happens regularly. This man walked by, he got two booklets, but he had no clue what in the world the Rebbe was talking about. He went to some of the senior Hasidic scholars in Crown Heights and asked them, what did the Rebbe mean by this? He gave me a second booklet for not making it a chazaka. Couldn't understand what this means. Nobody could understand. Nobody could explain this. He went to the Rebbe's secretaries and asked them what possibly could be the explanation to this, that I got another booklet for not making it into a chazaka, for not making something a repetition again and again. He couldn't understand. So the Rebbe's secretary, Rabbi Groner, said to him, you know, if you're not sure what it means and it's bothering you, you could write down on a piece of paper Write down what your question is, that you don't understand what the Rebbe said, and ask the Rebbe if he could explain it to you. He had no choice, so he wrote into the Rebbe that, you know, thanks for giving me this attention, you know, but I don't understand what it means, and whoever I ask doesn't know. 
So the Rebbe sent to him, writes back him a note and says that the last two times it was the year of Hakal, that means, if you think about it, what that means is in 1981, which was eight years before that, and in 1974, which was eight years before that, I didn't see you during those years of Hakal. So I'm happy that you didn't make it three times in a row of not showing up on the year of gathering of Hakal. <laughs> Imagine that. So this happens when he's giving out this mimer, just, you know, hundreds of people flying by, and the Rebbe notices the man and says this to the guy. That means the Rebbe keeps track who comes to visit and how, and how often you come. He kept track. In 1974, he didn't see him. And the man couldn't believe it. He's like, what do you mean? I come almost every single year. How could it be? He goes back to his passports. And the year of 1974 and 81, there was no stamp in his passport that he came into America. He couldn't believe it, how the Rebbe keeps track. You know, it's like, if you think about it, it's a parent that cares for their child so much that you keep track when they come, you know, if they didn't show up for a Shabbos meal, you remember, you know, but this is taking it to a new level. So after understanding a little bit of this background, I think we can go into the Sicha and get some appreciation for the depth of how the Rebbe takes apart a whole idea of this week's Parsha. Now, in order to appreciate this idea, I want to to, uh, point out that it will be very helpful that if you have a chumash next to you, or you could look on the screen here, and to realize, to study the, uh, the week, this week's uh, uh, few, three verses, because the, the, this whole talk takes apart a, uh, a readings in this week's portion of three verses, and once you get these three verses, you can really appreciate to what's happening here. And if you're on... The screen here, I will do a shared screen so you'll uh, be able to see it. Now, let's first recap what's happening in today's Parsha up to, to this, this point, and then we'll go into the text here. So what's happening is, is that Jacob is now an adult. He already got from his brother the uh, firstborn. He got from his father Isaac the blessings from his father and now it's time for him to leave home, especially he has to run away from his brother who wants to have his head for uh, getting him to take all, uh, for giving him the blessing and getting the blessings from his father in a deceiving way and so on and so forth. So in today's Parsha, we begin, Vayetze Yaakov, and Yaakov left the city of Be'er Sheva, which is Be'er Sheva, which is the city in Israel, and Vayelech Haran, and he goes to Haran, and here he's going to go look for a wife. He was told by his mother, go look for a wife in Haran, because in Haran, his mother, who was Rivka, Yaakov's mother, Rivka, had a brother living in Haran. Remember, Abraham lived also in Haran until he was 75 years old. And Abraham's father, Terach, died in Haran. So we have a lot of, you know, history to the land of Haran. So he goes there, and on his way, he gets tired, and he lays down to take a rest when the sun goes down. And he takes some rocks and he puts it around his head or under his head. And he rests there. And he has a dream. And that's the famous dream with the story of the ladder with the angels 
going up and coming down and God promising him that this land that your head is lying on is going to be the land. That's the land that, that you're going to have for you and your descendants. That's the land that I promised to Abraham and Isaac. And it's going to be from north, south, west, all the directions. This is going to be the land. Now, when Yaakov wakes up from his dream, he realizes, whoa, this spot that I just laid down, I put my head on this rock. This is a very holy place. I didn't realize that this was such a holy place. Where was the place where he put his head down? Where was this resting place? On Mount Moriah, which is later becomes the place where the temple gets built in Yerushalayim, Har HaMaria. Now, so Yaakov says, I didn't realize such a special place and he got very scared. He like got frightened. He realized that this is the place of God's temple. This is the place of the gates of heaven where all prayers are going to go through this exact spot. So he got up in the morning and he took this rock that was under his head and he made it into a matseva, which is like a tombstone. And he poured some oil on it to anoint this rock. And he called the name of this place Bethel. And now here comes What's important to us for this Sikha here? In verse 20, 21, and 22. If once you understand these three verses, the Sikha is going to flow. Verse 20, it says like this. And Jacob uttered a vow. He makes a vow at this point. Where he's up in the morning, he makes this altar, the stone, pours oil on it, and he realizes the sacredness of the space, and he makes a promise, a vow. And he says, if God will be with me and, in other words, he's making a condition with God. If God will be with me and he will guard me on this way, he'll protect me on my travelings, upon which I am going, that God, you'll protect me, you'll guard me on this way upon which I am going. And God, he will, God will give me bread to eat and a garment to wear. In other words, you're going to give me what I need. You're going to protect me on my travels. You're going to give me bread to eat and a garment to wear. I'm going to have clothes. I'll be a mensch. That's verse 20. Verse 21, and he continues. And he's part of his condition. If Hashem is going to give me all this. In verse 21, and if I return in peace to my father's house. In other words, after going to Lavan in Haran, and I'm going to look for my wife, and I'll come back home all in peace. Veshavti Bishalm, I'll come back in peace to my father's home. And the Lord will be my God. You'll be my God. And as Rashi points out, that when he says that God, you'll be my God, meaning that I will. Be full. I, God, you'll be so much with me that my offsprings will be non-defected offsprings. In other words, there won't be a problem in my next generation. Because remember, he knows that his grandfather Abraham had a son, Yishmael. Yitzchak, his father, has a son, my brother, Yaakov's brother, Asaph. So he's asking that Hashem, if you're going to help me and you're also going to be be there, that you're going to be my God, meaning that I won't have any defected offsprings, then if you're going to give me all this, he makes a promise 
with this condition. If you're going to do all these things, then, verse 22, then this stone, which I have placed as a monument, it shall be a house of God. I'm going to make this into a sanctuary place, and everything that you give me, I will surely tithe to you. I'll give tithing. That's his promise to God. So again, let's summarize. If he makes a promise, if God will be with me and guard me on my way, number one, and you will give me bread to eat, number two, and you will give me clothes to wear, number three, and you will return me to my father's home in peace, number four, and God, you will be with me, as Rashi says, that I won't have any disaffected children. So these five conditions, then I promise to you, God, I'm making a vow that I will designate this matseva, this monument, as a house for Hashem. In other words, I'm going to make a place where I'm going to pray and be sacrifices to. And Hashem, not just I'm going to have a place to pray, I'm going to give tithing miser from everything that I make. I'm going to give you tithing. So that is the words, the promise, and the condition that Jacob makes with God. So now, now let's go into the Sicha. So that's, you don't need the Sicha for this part, this is the actual verses. So now the Rebbe says that there are many Mefarshim, many commentaries, and he brings down the footnote. The Riva, the Barbanel, the Akeda, the Alshech, Re'em, Divrei David, and more. Many commentaries that ask a question. Is it really possible that Jacob, our forefather, that he should make a condition with God before he, before he, before he like, you know, delivers what his promise, he's going to make conditions with God? I mean, is that what Jacob's about? That he only will serve God in order to get a reward? I mean, God forbid to say so. Who serves God just to get a reward? You don't make a condition with Hashem. I'm going to do this and this good thing. I'm going to build a sanctuary and I'm going to give tithing if you give me A, B, C, D, and E. I mean, is that really what's happening here? So from here it's understood that we must say, and this is what the commentaries explain, that it's not the meaning that he made a condition that I'm only going to fulfill my promise. If you give me these, these conditional things, that's not what it means. Well, they explain that what does it really mean? It means is that Jacob said, I am committed to do this promise, which is to build this monumental place of, of service to Hashem and to give tithing. But I need basic means to be able to fulfill my promise. So it's not an, a, a condition. If you give me this, then I'm going to do my promise. He's saying is, I'm, re- I'm ready to, I'm, I'm committing, I'm making my promise, but I will only be able to do it if I have the means to be able to do it. Now, before we continue, I want to share with you another small story that's not in the Sicha here, but it's a fascinating little story that will help, helps us to understand what does it mean making commitment. So there's a whole story for another time about a Mr. Silver that lived in Toronto. It's actually a Toronto story. And this man was very sick. He was deathly sick in 1942. And the previous Rebbe gave a blessing. 
And one of the things that he had to do for this blessing was the family had to give a thousand dollar donation to a yeshiva, a new Chabad yeshiva that opened up in Montreal. 1942, the Jews came to survive from Shanghai. They came to Montreal. They opened, they established the Lubavitch Yeshiva there. Anyways, so in the there's a letter in volume seven of the previous Rebbe's letters from 1940, end of 42, this time of the month actually. And over there, the previous Rebbe writes to Mr. Silver that that I got your notice that you're making the commitment to give this money to the Yeshiva of Montreal. So he says to him, I'm going to tell you a story that regarding your commitment, your promise, your vow, your commitment to the Yeshiva of Montreal, I want you to know the following, that one of the followers of my late father, meaning the Rebbe Rashab, right? the previous Rebbe's father was the fifth Chabad Rebbe, he says, so one, there was a, a follower, one of his close you know, students, had, was very, very sick. May Hashem protect us. And he wrote a note to my father, the Rebbe, and in the note, he commits that he will, that when Hashem heals him, you hear this? He makes a commitment that when Hashem heals him, he will give a donation to the yeshiva Tom Chetvimim in the city of Lubavitch, meaning the Lubavitch yeshiva in the city of Lubavitch. And he will give an astronomical amount of money to the yeshiva when he gets healed from the sickness. And my father, the Rebbe Hashab, said to him, replied to him with a blessing, and then he wrote the following, that regarding to your commitment to the yeshiva, it's best that you fulfill your commitment as fast as possible and let God be the one that owes you something and will have to send you the healing. Then the other way around, that Hashem gives you the healing right away and then you become the person who owes God to fulfill your commitment. So in other words, from that story you see that commitment is a serious thing. When you make a vow, it's better to do whatever you can in your hands to fulfill a vow and let Hashem be the one that owes you back. Let it go that way. So back to our text here. I'm bringing you the story because... This is a little bit what Jacob's happening here. Jacob is saying, that's what these commentaries are explaining. Jacob is promising to do his thing. I'm going to build this temple and I'm going to give tithing. But he's saying, Hashem, I I think I'm going to need these things. So please give me these things. Not that it's a condition if you don't give it to me, I'm not going to do it. He's saying, I'm doing it. Now give me the means and I'll fulfill it. Like, let me actually do it. Now, so that's regarding the explanation to what happened here in Jacob's vow. So the Rebbe says like this, we can really better understand this, this whole idea of Jacob's promise and his conditions are really only saying I need that in order to fulfill the conditions. Says the Rebbe, if you look a little bit more 
into the verses, you're going to see a fascinating argument with Rashi and many other commentaries that view it like Rashi and the Ramban Nachmanides who views this verse a little bit different. And that is, if you look in verse 21, after verse 20, where Jacob says, I'm making a vow, that if you're going to be with me and you're going to guard me on my way, that I'm going. And you're going to give me bread to eat and garment to wear. In verse 21, he continues his conditions and he says, if I return in peace to my father's home and the Lord will be my God. So Rashi learns the whole verse 21 is part of his condition. That in verse 21 is, is the condition. If I return in peace to my father, v'shavti b'shalom abeis avi, and v'haya Hashem lilelakim, and God, you're going to be with me, as we said before, Rashi says, you're going to be with me in a way that'll be so much with me that none of my children will be defected spiritually. Now, however, the Nachmanani says, the Ramban says, verse 21 is actually broken up into two halves. The first half of 21 is part of Jacob's conditions, and the second half of 21 is part of his promise. And this is the way Nachmanides learns this. He says that when it says that I, if, and if I return in peace to my father's house, that's part of his condition. It's part of verse 20, really. And when it says the Lord will be my God, that's part of his promise. That if I get all these things, then I will be able to serve the Lord and the Lord will be my God. Meaning, I'll be able to serve God. Where? In verse 22, with this rock, this stone, this monument that I have here, I'm going to make that into the sanctuary place for Hashem. Now in this point of how do you see the second half of verse 21? Is it part of the conditions or is that part of his promise? According to Ramban, it's part of his promise. That I'm going to serve you with God. When it says, and the Lord will be my God, it means, and you will be my God. I'm going to serve you. Not like Rashi says, that if, you, if you're my God, meaning that it will be so clear and public that my kids will be all good kids. That's a condition. Ramban says it means the promise that it does nothing to do with that deep meaning about my children. It means that if that God, you, I, you will be with me, meaning that the Lord will be my God that I'm going to serve. But the Rebbe says, hold on one second. Let's ask a simple question. If verse, the second half of verse 21 is part of the promise that belongs to verse 22, then according to the Ramban, it should have been a separate verse. Why do you have in one verse 21, half of it is his condition and the second half of the verse is a promise? So we must say that according to the Ramban, the words that, and the Lord will be my God, the second half of this verse, and the Lord will be my God, we must say that even though it's part of the promise, there is something about this piece of the verse that's connected to the condition, and that's why it's in a verse with part of his conditions. So even though these words, and the Lord will be my God, means that the Lord will be my God that I'm going to serve, it's not just the promise, it's also connected more 
to the theme of his requests, of his conditions. And we're going to now learn a little bit more about the whole service of Jacob to understand how this is all connected to us. And then we'll appreciate this piece of the verse. Now, so what we have here is like this. Let's summarize this a bit. We have two part, two verses that have his condition. The whole verse 20 is a condition. And the half of verse 21, or like Rashi, the whole verse 21 is the condition. So that's two verses. According to the Ramban, we have, and in the answer, in his promise, we have two verses also. The whole verse 22, and according to the Ramban, the second half of verse 21. So you have two verses for the vow, for his condition, and two verses for the commitment, his vow. Now, there's also, by the way, if you pay a little bit of attention to the wordings here, you could see here, that in the first verse, in verse 20, it says, if God will be with me and he will guard me on his way, everything is conditioned that you're going to do for me, God. You're going to guard me. You're going to um, give me bread to eat and a garment to wear. So that's part of my conditions, things you're actively going to do. You're going to do these things for me. In verse 21, when it says, and I will return in peace to my father's house, that's doesn't, that doesn't say Hashem will do that. It's kind of like automatically that's going to happen. doesn't say, and if you return me in peace to my father's house. It just says, and if I return in peace to my father's house. That means that that's an automatic thing. So it's just pointing out that the first parts of the condition are, you're going to do that for me, Hashem. And this part of the condition, I'm going to go back to my father's house in peace, is an, on, an automatic thing. So now, to appreciate this nuance of the difference of the first half of the verse, the second half of the verse, whether the second half of verse 21 is part of the condition or part of the promise, for this, the Rebbe says, Let's analyze a little bit more what is exactly the story of Jacob's descending down to the city of Haran. Let's understand this. Jacob was on a journey. It's considered to be a descending because Israel is always considered to be the highest point and everywhere else outside of Israel means you descend. As you all know, when somebody goes to Israel and moves to Israel, what do you say? You're making Aliyah. You're going up. Always, it means going up, Aliyah. So if you're leaving Israel, it means you're going down. So now, Jacob went down from Beersheba and he went down to the diaspora and he, where did he go? To the city of Haran. Everywhere outside of Israel is called going down, but especially the place of Haran. In the end of Parsha Noach, Rashi points out when it says that Terach died in Haran, and over there there's a backwards nun there. Anyway, so Rashi points out there that Haran comes from the word Haran, which means angry, anger. Hashem's anger comes into the world. That's what it means, Haran, a place where there was idol worship. What was the point? Why do you make Jacob go down there? Why can't Jacob find a wife in Israel? What's the point for him to go all the way down, have a descending part of his life to go down to Haran to go find his wife? And not just that. You all know what happens. He ends up finding his, this father-in-law, 
his mother's brother named Lavan, this big, unfaithful, trickery kind of guy. And he has all kinds of problems with him, as we're soon going to learn. He ends up getting stuck there for 20 years. He works for his first wife seven years, for Rachel. And his father-in-law puts under the chuppah Leah. He has to work another seven years. And then he wants to leave after that. And his father-in-law says, ah, you can't just leave. Now you got to work for me. So he makes him work another six years. After 20 years, you know, he, he finally figured it out. He's going to escape in the middle of the night. But you see, what was the point of this journey? The point of this journey is like every descent. Every descent is in order to have an ascend afterwards. What was the, the ascend that happened after this descend, after Yaakov going down, now he goes up. So he says there was three ideas of an ascent that happened after this descent. Number one, when he went into Haran, into the house of Lavan, and he didn't let himself get affected from the sinning that was happening in the house of Lavan, what happens? If you go into a place full of sin and idol worship and you don't get caught up in that sin that's going on over there, that made Jacob reach a much higher level than he was before he went down there. Let's use, for example, a Baal Tshuva. A Baal Tshuva is known to be much greater than a Tzaddik. A person who used to sin and now stopped to sin is much greater than a Tzaddik. Why? Because this this Baal once sinned. He tasted the taste of sin. And nevertheless decides, no, I'm leaving this way of sin. I'm going to conquer my evil inclination. I'm not doing it anymore. It's like ask yourself a question. Who's greater? The man who never tasted a cheeseburger and doesn't eat a cheeseburger or a person that tasted it and knows ah, this is a lot of pleasure there and nevertheless stops to do it, stops to eat that. Much greater. The Baal is much greater because he knows what it tastes like and nevertheless gives it up. The person, the tzaddik, doesn't know what it is. So in our text, you can't compare it 100% to Jacob because obviously he didn't even sin. But at least this point that he goes down to a place that's full of sin and nevertheless he doesn't sin, that makes him, so to speak, like in the level of a Baal of a person that's been in that surroundings and nevertheless doesn't attach himself to it. So the first thing is, is that he had a descent, but he really came out to be much greater. His father Yitzchak never went into the diaspora. You can't give him that credit. Jacob went down there in Lavan's house for so many years and nevertheless stayed away from the evil inclination much greater. Number two, while he was there, he fulfilled his mitzvah of being fruitful and multiply. As the verse says, go take for yourself a wife there and multiply. And not just did he build a big family there. I mean, he only had 12 sons and one girl. But at least he had, as the expression of our sages is, that his bed was complete, which is a euphemism on the idea that all his offsprings that were born from him were complete. They were all righteous people. Abraham, although he had Yitzchak, but he also had a Yishmael. Yitzchak, although he had Yaakov, also had an Esav. But Yaakov, his bed was complete because all his children were perfect. 
tzaddikim. Yeah, they had some fighting, but they all repented from little fightings. But they didn't become sinners. So that's a number two quality that happened as an accomplishment of his descent down into Haran. Number three, and this is the most important one, as, as in the language of Hasidus, when he went down into Haran and he became a shepherd to the flock, to the sheep of his father-in-law Lavan, for how many years? 20 years. What happens, according to Hasidus, they explained to us a little deeper, what is this journey of being a shepherd to 20 years of these sheep, for 20 years? That's because there are a known concept that in the beginning of the world, we had the Big Bang. There was sparks of holiness that chipped off the vessels of the world of Tohu, and these sparks of holiness were scattered around the world. There was 288 of these holy sparks, and through doing service in this world, you elevate and take out these holy sparks that were there in these this flock of Lavan. And he made, he turned it into, as we say today, you know, a person that touches something and turned into gold, that's what happened with him. He touched the stuff, the flock, the business of his father-in-law and miraculously things started to sprout out in big miracle forms. So the third accomplishment is, is that he actually accomplished to make the purpose of this world a place the way Hashem likes it to be. A place where the sparks of holiness have been elevated into higher magnitudes than we could imagine. Now, Understanding this, we also have to understand a basic phenomenon in Judaism that is that anything that our forefathers did is a sign for their children. Meaning, it's a message for all of us children. If they did it, that means it's a message for us. So if Jacob went from Beersheba, from Israel, into Haran, that means there's something about that journey for all of us to learn from. And as the Or HaChaim puts it, he says that in this verse, that Jacob went out from Beersheba and went to Haran, teaches something not just on a general service that you do. It actually, that's a reflection of your soul, of every Jew that comes down from the higher worlds, your soul, into this world of an exile. And what's the purpose of our journey, all of us? Just like Jacob's journey. Just like Jacob's journey was all about having a descent for the ascent, so too it's for all of us. Our descending our soul down into this world is all for a reason to have an ascent. And we see this in all three of the accomplishments that he had. We're going to see the same thing in our service to Hashem. When a neshama comes down into this world, it is in a level of a tzaddik. And when it goes down into this world, it goes into your material body, body of limitations, with your animalistic soul, which tries to conceal godliness. And nevertheless, you do your service in serving God, even though your soul came down into this body, material body with the animal soul. And nevertheless, you do to study Torah and you do mitzvahs. That's like the Baal Shuva, That even though he was in a bad surroundings, nevertheless, he served God. So that's one accomplishment. The second accomplishment is that through descending down here, you're able to fulfill the idea of being fruitful and multiply, which is the idea of doing many, many studies of Torah and many, many performances of mitzvahs. And the third thing is that through working 
the cattle, meaning through working, the exile, the, the materialisms of this world, we make what God asks us to make of this world, which is a dwelling place for Hashem to live. That was the whole reason why Hashem made this world. To make a dwelling place that He could live in this world. Hashem's not interested in just living in the higher worlds. Big deal. He wants to live in the place that makes absolutely no sense. It's like the impossible. It's much more re- better feeling for all of us. When you do something that's the impossible, it feels much better than when you do the possible. So Hashem wants to have His infinity, specifically in the world, a finite. That's an accomplishment, to mix those two together. right? And that's the place where He wants to have His dwelling place. A little bit of this we got a taste in the base of Mikdash, of course, right? where the Ark didn't take up any place there. So you have this idea. Now, in this idea of taking the world, this low world, and making it into a dwelling place for Hashem, by elevating your soul, there is something even greater in one more step. And that is, in this world, you could study Torah and do mitzvahs. But then, how about, there's two verses that express, a Mishnah and a verse, Mishli, that express an instruction to every Jew like this. It says, that koma secha, all your actions should be for the sake of God. Or as the verse says, in all your ways, it should be it should be just for God. In other words, not just when I'm putting on tefillin or lighting a candle for Shabbos or dressing up for Shabbos, that's godly. Or eating food on Shabbos for the mitzvah of pleasure on Shabbos, that's obvious that there's Torah and mitzvah involved there. But even your mundane stuff that are like optional stuff, the optional things of life, even those things should be done just for God. That means that I should make a dwelling place for Hashem, not just in my holy sphere of things of life, but even in my work, in all my optional things that are not at all in the world of Torah and mitzvah, even that should be for the sake of Hashem. So, you know, somebody said, am I allowed to, I'm giving my own example, but somebody says, am I allowed to go on vacation? And the answer is, if you're going to go on vacation like a Yid, then why not? In other words, even if you're going to see God there, you're going to do it for the sake of getting stronger, healthier, have more strength, more freshed up, to be able to serve Hashem, then that's good. You can't say there's a mitzvah on going on vacation. But the point is that even on things that are optional things, called divrei rishus, even over there, you do it for the sake of heaven, that's already an accomplishment of going even farther and making a dwelling place for Hashem, even in that area. So you have like this, in making a dwelling place for Hashem, you have two areas. Let's just say you have the area of in a shul, and you have the area of in your home. I can make a dwelling place for Hashem in a shul, probably much easier, because the atmosphere is set for the holiness. But make a dwelling place for Hashem, even in your house, and in your workplace, and so on, that's already a much greater accomplishment. I remember in 1991, I think it was, maybe 92, the Rebbe said that people should have a charity box in their business places, and you should give an extra something money to every worker you have, and get them to put tzedakah in there, even the non-Jews, everybody. The point is, you're making a dwelling place in a place that you don't even see the holiness over there. Much greater accomplishment. So now, the Rebbe goes on to explain that actually making a dwelling place in your own 
worldly space, not your holy space, is actually even greater than making a dwelling place for God when you do your studies of Torah and doing mitzvahs, the holy things. Why? Because when you subdue your evil inclination to the point where your evil inclination gets tired and weak and exhausted, then what happens when you want to do a mitzvah? When you Let's just say you want to do the mitzvah of, let's take an example with, um, um, let's say challah, right? Shabbos. You want to make a blessing on your challah or on a cup of wine to make a lachayim. So you subdue your evil inclination. And now I do my mitzvah, I make a motzi. Or I make a bar piyagafen on the wine. So when you do that, you're actually now in the level of a tzaddik. Why? Because a tzaddik always wants to do what Hashem wants. So now that I subdued my Yitzhahar and I want to do what's right, what are you doing? You're actually revealing the truth of who you are. Because the truth is that every Jew wants to serve God. As you remember, we learned many times a story with the person who has to give a get. He has to give the divorce paper to his wife. And if he doesn't want to, the courts are allowed to force you until you say, okay, I want to do it. What do you mean? You're forcing a guy to say, I want to do it if he's not really interested in doing it? And the Rambam says, the truth is that every Jew wants to do what's right. The only thing is sometimes evil inclination pushes you to say that you don't want to do it. But really, I know what you want to do, right? So that means the same thing when you do Torah and mitzvahs. If you have to subdue your Yetzirah to that doesn't want you to do it, you knock out your Yetzirah, and now you do the mitzvah. So you're like a tzaddik, really, who truly always wants to do it. But when it comes to the worldly matters that you, why do you, are you involved in the worldly matters? Because I have a desire to be involved in it. I want to, you know, eat that piece of cake. I want to do this. My animal soul is telling me to enjoy it. And nevertheless, I'm only going to do it if I could take the energy and the good feeling out of that extra piece of cake or whatever it is to serve Hashem, then you're actually like a Balchuba. Because you took what, what seemingly you have a desire to do not for Hashem, and nevertheless, and then if Hashem, you're much higher level than a tzaddik. Now, when you do worldly matters that are not even Torah mitzvahs at all, so you're like the level of a Balchuba. What did you do then? You now revealed that you truly have a deep place of a relationship with Hashem. You're like tied to Hashem. You're so close to Hashem all the time. And now I'm revealing that bond I have with Hashem. So just like it is like that in worldly matters that I'm revealing that I'm so bonded with Hashem, that's why I want to do this to be close to Hashem. So too, it's with my neshama that comes into my body and in my animal soul. And my evil inclination is now revealed that it really wants to do what Hashem wants. Because even in the worldly things, I'm now doing what Hashem wants. That means not just when I do Torah and mitzvahs, then, then it's like I'm a tzaddik when I start doing it. But even things that you would be tied up, like in worldly matters, and you're so desiring to do these worldly matters, whether it's eating or doing whatever other material, pleasurable things that you want. And now I'm doing also that just for Hashem. That's a much higher level. Now, now we understand the greatness of Teshuvah 
that when you return and you do something for Hashem, even in worldly matters, you're doing even worldly matters, you're doing it just for the sake of Hashem, regarding the tshuva that you would do for doing Torah mitzvahs. Because, again, you're emphasizing the idea that when I do teshuva, I'm doing it because my animal soul now feels also that it wants to do what Hashem wants it to do. So in other words, you convinced your animal soul that really expresses itself all the time that it only wants to do material pleasures. And you now got even those material pleasures to be done for a spiritual reason, just for Hashem, that's a much greater accomplishment. This reminds me of the story of the chassid that came to his mashpia, to his teacher, and he said to him, am I allowed to translate the words in my davening in Yiddish? He wanted to say the words and try Today it's like saying, can I daven, say the Hebrew and the English? Is that considered an interruption if I say the words in English? So his teacher said to him, why do you want to translate every Hebrew word? He said, I want my animal soul to understand also what I'm saying. <laughs> so it's like you say it in English because you want to go that extra step. It's not just my godly soul, my spiritual side of me should feel it. Even my material side of me should feel it. Now, this idea that even the elevation that my soul has through doing even worldly matters for the sake of Hashem, it does not come even close to the accomplishment that we said in the third accomplishment of Jacob's descending down to the diaspora to Haran. We said that the third quality was that he makes a dwelling place for Hashem. He elevated the sparks out of the cattle that he was shepherding for his father-in-law. These qualities of that my soul gets an elevation through its service to Hashem is not in comparison to the greatness of fulfilling this idea of making a dwelling place for Hashem. Why not? So he says we could explain this with the following. And here's a little bit of a more sensitive, deeper idea, but it's could blow your mind away. It says like this. The bond that your soul has with Hashem is connected with the natural course of what your soul is. The whole idea of your soul is what? It always wants to be connected to something spiritual. That's the whole point of a soul. You know how people say in Yiddish, ah, gita neshama. You know, yeah, good soul. What do you mean? Because your soul naturally always, that's the whole thing of the soul. It naturally wants to get close to Hashem. Now, Terebah brings down in Tanya, that your soul is like a fire that always wants to go upwards. So that's, a, that's the, the natural feeling of the soul that wants to get spiritual, wants to feel God. And in a strong way. So therefore, we have to conclude that if your soul comes down into its body, it's true that the natural instinct of your soul is to get close to God. But because it comes down into your body and into the animal soul that's in you, that means the journey of the soul getting close to God is going to still be with some kind of level of limitation. Because your soul came into the body. 
That's why we call it that your soul is in an exile. No matter what happens, that your soul is on fire and you want to get close to Hashem, in any way you look at it, it's still going to be limited to its limitations because it's connected with the body. However, when the neshama affects in worldly matters, that the world, the physical material world, should become a vessel to godliness, that means that we're now changing the course of the nature of the worldly matters. The world on its own is, how do you say the wor- world in Hebrew? Ha'olam. Right? Melech ha'olam. Baruch Hashem Kainu, Melech ha'olam. Olam means world. Olam is spelt with an ayin, which also represents the idea of helem. Helem means concealment. That means that this world is also a place of concealment over godliness. That means the only way I could unite this world and make it into a dwelling place to come close to Hashem is only if Hashem opens that floodgate for that to happen. Because the natural course of the world, Olam, is Helam, concealment. So if I want to break that concealment and make Hashem connected into this world, that has to happen only with Hashem itself. That means there's no limitations to that. So that means my soul going up and getting close to God has limited capacity. But the world becoming one with God is unlimited. Wow. That means making a dwelling place for Hashem is even greater accomplishment than my soul getting close to God. Now, through this idea that the neshama makes the world a dwelling place for Hashem and brings out, it reveals the infinity of God and the unity of God into this world. That makes that your bond, your bond, the world's bond with Hashem isn't done in a way that's infinite. So now, all these elevations that your neshama gets, the descend in order to have the ascent after, is ultimately not the main goal of the journey of your soul coming down. Because we know, we have a couple quotes from the sages, including in Pirkei Avos, it says, that everything that God created in this world was for God's glory. And I was created... I was born and created to serve God. That means everything really is for God. It's not for my soul to be go to come to a higher level. It's really something to accomplish for God's purpose, not for my own soul's purpose. So it's understood that the ultimate purpose of coming down to this world is for your soul down here, which is down here, to accomplish what God wants it to happen. Like the Alter Rebbe says in the Tanya, that the neshama comes down into this world not because the neshama needs the journey. It's in order to transform your body and your soul and everything around you in this world to bond it up and become one with the infinite light of Hashem. Because that's how you make the dwelling place for Hashem. The only thing is, how could you make a dwelling place for Hashem? You need the soul. So therefore the soul also has a reward that your soul reaches a higher level than it was before it came down to this world. So take for example like this. Let's say your neshama was at this level right here. Okay, let's say shoulder height, okay? So now let's use it as an example. So the soul was here, it comes down into this world, all the way down. Now what's the purpose of the journey? So the soul should go higher. Do we want the soul to go straight back up to the same shoulder height that it was before? 
What was the point of the journey? You might as well just stay in the same spot. Ah, so the point is that the soul comes down. Through going down in the journey, it picks up momentum through doing everything it did in this world and it goes back even higher and it's up here. Now I understand there's an accomplishment. And by the way, it's a lesson everything in life. Every time you have a descent in life, it's only to have a greater ascent afterwards. Other words, otherwise Hashem would never make the descent. So a person that gets weaker, a person that loses money, a person that goes through a Shalom bias problem, whatever it is, it's always to come out better and higher than it was before you had the descent. But here he's telling you something even greater than that. Not just the point is for the neshama to come down and go back up higher than it was before it came down. The goal is not even the neshama. The goal is that the world gets a dwelling place for Hashem. I, my neshama is the one that came down to this world to make it happen. Okay, so the neshama gets an extra reward that it goes higher than where it was before it came down. Now says the Rebbe, let's understand. How does this fit with the famous idea that the soul descends down into this world all because of its to have a ascent afterwards? That means that the ascent is not a side factor. It's the purpose of the soul's journey is to get to a higher place. We just said that the it's the purpose of everything is to make a dwelling place for Hashem. Ah, you need the soul to make it happen so the soul benefits. Is the soul a side factor or a main factor? So he says, to explain this at least briefly, he says like this. In the idea of making this world into a dwelling place and we're specific downer in this world is like this. So you have to understand the difference the way things work in the higher worlds and the lower worlds. Most of us have never been in the higher worlds, at least not in a way with our bodies, to really describe it well. You know, people always ask me, what's it like, Rabbi, in the Garden of Eden? I tell them, I have no idea. I don't think I was ever there. You know, so you say that. In the higher worlds, hard to, but we do know we have a little bit of some ideas based on what the Kabbalah and Hasidus reveals to us. So they tell us like this. In the higher worlds, the light is on. Everything's in a revealed way. So what do you see in the higher worlds? Only things that were revealed. So if you want to know more about God, in the higher worlds, they know a lot about God. They see the angels. There's angels there. There's there's all kinds of good stuff. In this world, it's different. In this world, when you do something to connect to God, you actually connect to the essence of God. You don't get involved with all the side candies that are there. You get the essence itself. Because I can't have any of this revelations down here. It doesn't happen like that in the world. You get the essence itself. So now, where does the essence of God find itself? Only and mainly in down here in this world. We use Kabbalistic terminologies that in this world you have a bittle, you have like a nullification with no end. Meaning we're so in non-comparison to anything holy, we're so material that we have the revelations only of the essence of God through me feeling and realizing that I'm nothing to Hashem. Let's just say as the, the, uh, the view from a plane to anything down around this world, it looks like nothing. So because you're so far and seemingly like nothing, 
Therefore, you, when you do grasp something of Hashem, you grasp from the essence. It's like there's no end. It's called a note. But when you're in the higher worlds and you have this nullification idea, it's like I'm a nobody. But really, when you're in the, in the skies, you feel like you're so connected. So it's like, where do you get, where do you get it stronger? It's when I'm in this world. When I'm farther from the revelations, that's where you get the essence itself. Let, let's use an example that's brought down in some places in Hasidus. It doesn't bring it down into Sikha here, but I think this is an easier for, example for us. When you see a Jew that's a very, or any scholar, it's a very big scholar, and you say to them, who do you recognize, how do you recognize the greatness of everything that you have, all your blessings? So the person sits down for a couple hours and gives you the explanations, how his soul is so great, and God's so great, and that's how I have everything from God. When you ask a simple Jew, how are you? How do you, how do you have everything? He says, oh, he right away says, thank you, God. In other words, it's, it's much more pure it gets straight to the core. When you just say, thank you, Hashem, you're automatically grabbing on to the essence of what Hashem is all about. You're not getting carried away with all the titles. So that's a little bit like this idea. He brings here another in his actual example. He says, there's two different kinds of servants that serve their master. There's the servant that understands the greatness of the king or their master. Wow, what a great honor. It's such a privilege to be here and to work for you and to serve you. You're so majestic and on and on and on and on. That's one level. That's one level of a servant. It's very good. But a higher level of a servant is the person who's a simple servant. We call him an Eved Pashut. A simple person that he just knows this is my job. That's what I do. You're my boss. You're my master. You're my king. That's what I do. You know, I remember once uh, reading something once from one of the presidents of the United States, you know. Imagine a president of a superpower of the world. The person that's his servant that brings him his cup of water or his whatever drink. You don't want a person that's a very smart, sophisticated person. You want somebody that's very loyal to the job, never wants to do anything wrong, doesn't even care to get paid for it, just feels this is the present, this is my mission of life to do this. That's a very high level. So when it comes to serving Hashem in this world down here, that's the greatest, greatest pleasure to do it and serve God in the most simplest place in this world where we don't even see God in us all over us. Now you understand what the neshama comes down into this world in order to get elevated. It's not that just that it's a side point. This is viewed very interestingly. It's the soul that helps that you could do the ultimate purpose, which is to make a dwelling place for Hashem. So even though it's me, my soul that's doing this to make a dwelling place for Hashem, but it's not about me. It's like, I don't care what happens to me. I don't care how great my soul gets now. I only want to make sure that Hashem's desires get full, gets fulfilled. Hashem wants a dwelling place. I'm making the dwelling place. I am also going to gain out of it. No, Zolzain. But I don't, that's not what I'm here for. Right? It's not about you. 
It's about the cause. Hashem wants this to happen. I'm here for that purpose. So it's really, in a way, it looks like it's connected. The soul has a descent for an ascent, but ultimately it's not because the soul was looking for any self-fulfillment. The goal is for Hashem's fulfillment to have a dwelling place. Now, based on all of this, he says now we could explain back to the four ideas that we had in the continuation of the verses that we said before about Jacob's promise. Let's try to do this in a fairly smooth way. So again, let's recap. You have verse 20 where Jacob says, I'm going to make a vow if you give me protection, guard me on my way. Number two, you're going to give me bread to eat. Number three, a garment to wear. And number in verse 21, he continues his condition. You're going to return me to my father's house in peace. And according to, so that's the second half of his condition. And then he says, like the Ramban says, and you will be with me, my God, that the Lord will be my God. That's number three. And the fourth thing, that this is the stone, the monument that I'm going to make to Hashem. What's the purpose of all of this? In the, of the promise of Jacob and his condition. His condition is only the way in order to fulfill his promise, as we said in the beginning of this Sicha. So based on all of this, the main goal of the Neshama come down to this world is two parts. Number one, for the Neshama to have an elevation. And number two, which is the ultimate thing, is to make a dwelling place for Hashem. So too, when you serve Hashem. When you serve Hashem, you have two things. You have the way of serving Hashem, of doing, learning Torah and doing mitzvahs. And then you have the way that all my actions, all your actions should be done for the sake of Hashem. Comes out has to come out from this, that these two ideas of the condition are two ways in serving Hashem. When you say, in the condition, first you say, guard me, remember verse 20, you say, guard me on my way. What does it mean, guard me in your spiritual way of Hashem? It's not just protect me from bad people. It means protect me from any bad elements. Let me stay away from anything evil. How? Through two things, a garment and food. That's the positive things. Food, we know, is comparison to the study of Torah. We we say that my stomach is filled with your Torah. So Torah is food. And garments is things you wear. That's doing mitzvahs. So that's part of this condition. And he says that even in my worldly matters, I should not descend lower into any bad. I should always do everything for the sake of God. So that's the two kinds of services of Hashem, the conditions to guard me and to do the mitzvahs and even to do the worldly matters. Now he says these are two services to Hashem that are expressed in the promise. What is Jacob's promise? He says, Hashem, you should be my God. Right? You should be my God in verse 21. He said, you should be my God. And you should return me in peace. To where? And then I'll make a place 
where I will have a base Elohim, in verse 22, a place where I have a monument, shall be the house of God. Now, since the main thing of the Neshama is to serve Hashem, and do it before Hashem, therefore we say, Hashem Li, the end of verse 21, in, a, in the continuation to the idea of, that this is the monument that I'm going to make a house for Hashem. In other words, according to the Ramban, that he says that the second half of 21 is that I should be able to serve, Hashem should be with me. The Lord will be by be my God, meaning I'm going to serve Him. And how is that with this monument? Nevertheless, since the main thing of the point of the Neshama is not for the Neshama itself, but it's only in order to make a dwelling place for Hashem. Therefore... Therefore, Yehi Vahaya Hashem Li, this verse, the second half of verse 21, is more connected because it's more connected to the continuation to stress the idea that the main service is to serve Hashem, to make a dwelling place for Hashem. So that's the idea of these two parts, of the two parts of the verses that are connected to the Condition and the two parts of the verse that connected to the promise. But now we could explain, even according to Rashi, who says that the second half of verse 21 belongs to the condition. The whole, like, it begin, belongs to, connected to the beginning of verse 21. So he says, is because, that the Lord will be my God is a detail not in my neshama coming down into this world, but it's related to the aliyah that's going to happen after that. In other words, like the way the Ramban says it, meaning that, like Rashi said first, your God is going to, the Lord will be my God in a way that there will be no deficiency in my offsprings. The way the name of Hashem will be there from the beginning and till the end in all my offsprings. That could be only when I reveal the ultimate bond that I have with Hashem where it has no limitations. And this is, that this that according to Rashi, this verse is all about the condition, not about the promise. That's because the ascent that happens through the neshama is only a preparation to the ultimate goal, which is to make a dwelling place for Hashem. So my soul elevation that happens after the descent is only a preparation to the ultimate goal. And this explains to us the reason why, according to Rashi, the second half of verse 21 is part of the condition. And according to the Ramban, it's the second half of verse 21 is part of the promise. The Ramban is not just a translator, commentary to the Torah that says only the simple meanings. The Ramban writes in his introduction that in, in his opening to this commentary on the Torah, he writes that what I'm going to teach you is sweet ideas that are known to the Kabbalists. In other words, it's ideas that are known to the world, the realm of Ideas that are revealed ideas. And over there, you could talk about also the purpose of the neshama itself as a main service is for the neshama to have an ascent after its descent into this world. But when Rashi looks at things, Rashi says he is all about explaining things on the literal level. On the literal level, 
The whole purpose of the service of a person in this world is to be like that simple servant that is not looking for any personal gain. He doesn't care if his neshama gets elevated higher than it was before he came down to this world. Very nice. But that's not what he's here for. He's a simple servant. doesn't care for that. And all he wants is one thing, the simple servant, is I want my master to be happy. My master wants a dwelling place. That's all I care for. So now we understand the whole thing. So let's summarize this entire sicha. Let's summarize it.